Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I am just beyond elated to bring you this guest today. Uh, just a really, really special one. He is the executive chef of The Boiler Room. He's been nominated for a James Beard Award. I think he's widely viewed as one of the top chefs, not only in Omaha, but really in the whole Midwest. Tim Nicholson, welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. So I just want to, before we even get started, I, I want to explain to people like who aren't familiar with the boiler room exactly how special this place is. And I, I was kind of, I was a slow adapter to it. Like I, I hadn't gone until probably four or five months ago. And it was a place as I was, as I was doing this podcast, I would have more and more chefs, you know, we just kind of talk a little bit after the episode and they'd be like, oh, you know, have you been to the boiler room? And I'd be like, oh, no, I haven't been there. Like, it's it's high on my list of places I need to go. And they're like, no, you need to go. So, like, when I start hearing people in the industry tell me this is the place you need to go, that that sticks out to me. And now I've been twice. And, yeah, my mind has just been blown Love both it. times. I'm a huge fan. So, I guess I now that I've served as your hype man to kind of set this up, right. I, I want to provide just kind of from a high-level view for someone who hasn't been to – the boiler room in your eyes what makes it different than any other omaha restaurant oh man i think just the initial visual cue that you get the second you walk in the door yes i mean i remember the first time i went you walk in and you're on the second floor which you're already not expecting and then you look down into the bar into the kitchen there's this perfect like unrefined refined quality of the whole space that is unmatched anywhere else you go in Omaha. I mean, to have dinner and a show laid out in front of you in a way that isn't at any other restaurant is something that's beautiful in itself and can't be replicated. And I think that is what separates it from all other restaurants in downtown Omaha and West Omaha, really just, I mean, the country itself. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been people that, you know, want to pick it up and plug it into bigger cities, but it just sits so perfectly in the old market, Omaha, that, you know, it's become a staple, and I'm fortunate to be at the helm. It just, it does really just fit that vibe so well, because you've got, like, the brick walls, you've got the exposed, like, girders and, and pipes and stuff. Like, it just, it feels like such a part of the old market, and then you mentioned, and I want to talk about this more later, but that concept of the open kitchen, I mean, a lot of places have an open kitchen, but they don't have seating on the second floor. So like at the boiler room, you can yeah. look down into the kitchen and really see what's going on. That's so unique to be able to get that view. And of course, you being humble, you haven't even talked about the food yet. Like, yes, the atmosphere <laughs> yeah. is great, but but the food is, is really exceptional in and of itself. Now, I wanted to bring up a quote um, from, 2000, uh, from 2009 when the boiler room first opened, um, Paul Kulik, who was then the executive chef, he said he wasn't sure, or no, he, he was often told by other people, Omaha might not be ready for this. Mm -hmm. What do you think those early reservations were, and how do you think the boiler room has been able to overcome them and obviously become a staple of Omaha cuisine? Yeah, so I, was, I started at Boiler Room late 2010, so... In 2009, when they opened, you know, it was brand new to Omaha. That level of dining, that style of dining, that classic French-European-inspired, you know, offcuts of steak, offals, 
you know, were huge on the menu back then that are a little more challenging to get today just from, you know, higher production quantity of farmers that have now selling to everyone in the Omaha food scene rather than just a couple restaurants. Um, but those that style of dining, the first course, second course, dessert wasn't really laid out. You went to a restaurant and you got everything on the plate. Or, you know, you get a la carte steakhouse, potato, salad bar. So to kind of expand the everyday menu into this, you know, unique chef-driven fine dining wine cellar, old world wines, you know, not your standard, what you see at, I don't want to say every restaurant, but, you know, the traditional restaurants that we were used to going to, you know, it was something that maybe Omaha wasn't ready for, but they adapted very well to. And the palate and, you know, the chef-driven and food shows really helped that, you know, romance in, you know, going out to eat. And so, you know, you mentioned you joined the Boiler Room as a sous chef in 2010. Yeah. So they had about a year at that point to kind of get their get their feet underneath them. But the concept still relatively new to mm-hmm. Omaha. People were still kind of adapting to that. What, like, you know, did you... Was that just an opportunity that excited you or or kind of what drew you to come into that? Because it was still new. Yeah. So I, I was going to culinary school and I had worked my way up through a couple restaurants and I was at a steakhouse at Jack Binion's. It was a prime steakhouse as a sous chef, but I was getting just overworked and doing the same thing over and over and over and over. And I didn't grow up cooking, and it was kind of something that came in later in my life, but I loved it. loved working with my hands, like creating, and I always wanted to do new things. And at the steakhouse, you were a little limited. Everything had to be, you know, steak on a plate, potatoes, au gratin, asparagus, you know, the same thing over and over. Mm -hmm. When you tried to change the menu, you know, they have a lot of regulars there, so there's a lot of, you know, feedback that we got to go back to the old ways, so... I was just kind of tired of all of that. And my friend had just staged at a boiler room. And this was right when the Great Plume was opening up. And I was like, hey, man, if you're going to go to boiler room, can you get me in touch with Clayton at the Great Plume? Because I got to get out of here. I need to learn. I don't care what it is. Clayton Chapman, the executive chef there. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like this funny series of events because my friend that was staging at boiler room, was good friends with Clayton, so he ended up going to be Clayton's sous chef. And I was like, well, okay, then get me in touch with Paul Kulik. And one fateful day, I had coffee at what used to be Aromas, caddy corner to a boiler room. It's now hearty coffee. Um, and the rest is history. We had coffee, and then he hired me as a sous chef. And to be able to create something new every day, I just fell in love with it. It became part of my life. It was the exact style of food I wanted to cook. Just classic quality cooking with like your own twist, its own twist. You know, that perfect, imperfect, refined on a plate, but, you know, maybe derived from a previous memory, maybe the flavors of a sandwich, you know, whatever it is that inspires the dish. You know, it just, it became part of me and I love it. Well, I think it's so interesting just kind of the way that you frame that in that you went from a steakhouse where everything is 
not the same, but more or less the same every day. You're cooking the same things over and over again. Where at the boiler room, the menu literally changes every day. <laughs> there are some things that will stay yeah. for, you know, a day or two, maybe a week. You know, it's not like you're reinventing the wheel every single day, but there are things exactly. that are changing every day. Is that reinvigorating as a chef to constantly uh, be inventing, inventing and constantly be innovating? It's, it's what's kept me there for so long. And it's what, you know, every chef that works there, every cook that works there loves. You know, we're we're only held back by our own reservations. And, you know, if, if we get stagnant on one dish, someone there is going to say, hey, we need to change this. This needs to change. Like, can we get this in? And I love letting my cooks help drive it. You know, everyone, you're going to be able to learn something from everyone, like regardless their time in the industry, they're going to have an idea that is going to make its way onto Boiler Room's menu. And it's been like that since I started to today and that you know paul let me have that when i was there those reins and then you know as label yawn opened up and i was able to kind of step into the executive chef position it's just been great to give that same opportunity to all the line cooks and chefs that have been there with me under me side by side you know we're all equal in that sense where we're, if you have an idea i'm gonna let it happen we're gonna let it happen and make it a reality and that's what cooks love to be there. The service staff loves to see that. You know, it makes it easier to sell at the table, and it, you know, it translates to the dish, to the diner. They're able to see that story and, like, taste the flavors and the thought process behind it, and it's been a dream come true, really. How rewarding is that for you to be able to create a story through a dish versus huh. just throw something on a plate that someone ordered? Oh, it's, I mean, if that is translated at the table through the food, then that means we've done our ultimate duty and job as a chef. I mean, that's, that's the reality you hope for, you know, maybe it doesn't happen every time to every single dish, but if you ever get that feeling at a restaurant you go to, then you need to go back and thank the chefs and the staff. And I mean, that's, that's the ultimate goal. So, I mean, rewarding 100%. All right, we're going to talk a lot more about Boiler Room and about the current state of things, but I want to go back a little bit because I think mm-hmm. it's it's so interesting, you know, to to kind of get into your backstory and at least from my research what I found and that you talk to a lot of chefs and then they'll just be like, "Man, I grew up at my mom's feet in the kitchen. Like I was yeah. watching my mom cook every single day or I spent so much time with my grandma or like I was with my dad grilling all the time." That wasn't that wasn't the path for you. You didn't no. grow up like loving cooking immediately. So how mm. did you get into it? Oh man. Uh, I mean, loved food. I would make like chocolate chip cookies and stuff with my mother, but it was never, I mean, there was always home cooked meals at home, but uh, yeah, it was never my job or I was never present. We were always running around outside. Um, the funny thing is, is I started cooking in high school um, I needed an elective class. So me and my friend both signed up for Foods 1-2 as a blow-off elective. It's like, this will be easy. Easy credit. Graduate. Uh, And I ended up really enjoying it. Like, oddly enough, it was fun. Uh, I I guess I was kind of good at it. And uh, I ended up joining the culinary team. The teacher was like, oh, if you like it, you should try this out. So as an extracurricular, kind of hopped on. 
doing the cooking competition they held down at the career center. We made like steak and horseradish, mashed potatoes, carrots, and like a blue cheese butter, um, which was all ingredients I'd never really heard of, put on a plate, tasted. And one of the guys in the team cut his finger that day and, you know, just ended up being something I really like to do. I don't even think we placed or anything of note, but it that is what just sparked my interest in cooking and how, I guess, artistic it can be on the plate and not just taste good, but open people's minds to something that's beautiful and flavorful and, you know, spark that memory that we were just talking about. Um, and that's what got me in it. My first job was Panera Bread, but I don't really count that. <laughs> and I was I was pretty good in school, in high school. Uh, had a pretty good grade point average, so I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to Metro and started at the culinary school there. This was before the new building, so it was uh, fun to learn. It was a lot more challenging back then. We didn't have the brand new facility and all the equipment, but... I'm happy I learned that way because at Boilerum, it's a 120-year-old building. You know, things are far from perfect. You know, the equipment is old, it's used, it's loved. That's what I like to call it. Um, And so to learn, you know, when things aren't perfect, you know, it really translates to the time and dedication put towards all these dishes. But it's really fun, and culinary school is a good time. And then from there, just... Worked at a fish fish fry place, and then Embassy Suites, and then 360 Steakhouse, and then Jack Binion's, and then Boiler Room. Just working hard mm-hmm. all the time. Well, I, for one, and I feel like probably along with the rest of Omaha, would personally like to thank whatever that high school teacher was <laughs> that yeah. that sparked your interest, or whoever led mm-hmm. the culinary team, like... Thank you to that person. I hope you're listening. Mrs. Bailey. Mrs. Bailey, we, we love you. Thank you so much. So I, I find it so interesting. You said, you know, your first job was fr- frying fish at Joey's Seafood and Grill. And I, I don't know anything about this place. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a fine dining establishment. It doesn't sound like it. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm curious because, you know, you talk about what really got you excited about cooking was was, you know, being able to tell that story on the plate and working with these ingredients, you know, at the culinary competition that you weren't used to. And then you go into this job where you're frying fish. And I'm assuming, you know, it's kind of like you talked about the steakhouse, where you're doing the same thing day after day. How do you keep the passion that you found alive as you look for something better while you're working your way kind of through that introductory period? Oh, man. I think that is a testament a lot to the chefs you work for. Um, so Joey Seafood and Grill, I worked for Brad Grosser, who's still an incredible friend to this day. He was in the restaurant a couple weeks ago. He now owns and operates the Sojourn Cafe in Ralston, if you haven't been. Delicious. Fantastic. Awesome breakfast and yeah. brunch place. He's a, just an incredible guy, and I worked for him, uh, shoot, I think I was 18, 19, young, young Tim. Uh but just his push on me, you know, his, you know, constantly wanting to see me develop as a chef and in this industry, he was hard on me. He was fair on me. He treated me like I was much older than 18, you know, gave me the proper guidance, had fun and just, you know, really kind of cultured me into my next step. And as fate plays out, you know, I was 
he promoted me to like lead line cook there and I was in charge of guys that were like in their thirties, forties. It was really, you know, a shock to me. I was not quite as confident and outspoken back then. You know, I was a young kid and I wasn't sure what to do and how to handle myself. And, you know, I ended up getting in touch with people and I came to him and I was like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to quit. I got to move on. I'm going to MSC suites. And he just started laughing because he had just picked up the executive sous chef position at Embassy Suites. So <laughs> as fate plays out, we ended up moving at the same time. So I got to work with the same guy. We worked in two different uh, departments at Embassy, but it was fun to still kind of have this sense of home at a new space. Um, but it is a testament to the chefs you work for and them, you know, continuing to culture and shape you and teach you to your next step in life and in this career. You know, it's a fun, wild industry. It's competitive. It's fast-paced. But the people in it really just become family. And it makes you never want to leave and just keep pushing forward. Now, I need to go back a little bit to something you just talked about there. When you're promoted to the headline cook and you said you're, you know, you're all of a sudden in charge of people who are 10, 15, maybe even 20 years your senior – I imagine there were some there were yeah. some tough times there, especially just with the the high level of tension that can exist in a kitchen. Like, how did you manage that? You know, it's it's developing the relationship, and I think with most people, you know, you can become pretty respectful to hard work, and when you see the job being done and the job being done correctly, it's hard to judge what that person's telling you or saying. You know, so when I'm working laps around people or, you know, picking up the slack and cleaning and maybe doing jobs that I shouldn't have been doing, but they needed to get done. So I was the one doing it. You know, maybe it's it gave them a chance for 10 more extra minutes on break. And, you know, they see someone that wants to work hard and will pick up every shift you want off that it becomes less of an an argument and more of a the job's getting done. They're still making money and have a job. There's there's no reason to have any resentment towards any of that so you know leading by example and hard work really pays a lot of dues in this industry mm -hmm. so when you when you get to boiler room in late 2010 and you get a chance to do the type of cooking that first got you so excited about the industry just what was that like? For, was that like opening Pandora's box? Just this, this yeah. treasure chest that had been locked that, you know, now you get to just enjoy everything inside? Yeah. Well, at first I was extremely nervous. <laughs> uh, you know, I knew I knew how to cook a steak and make 50 pounds of mashed potatoes every day, but that's not at all the case there. I mean, cooking meat and protein cookery is a huge testament of what we do, but... You know, you're, you're doing 20 instead of 300. Uh, so it's it was a definite change of pace and nervous to work for a chef that understood flavors and could help teach me new flavors. But fundamental classic cooking is my bread and butter. I love it. But, I mean, I was extremely nervous to step into that position. I mean, the culture at Boiler Room was developed to the point where it's a family and I never really experienced a lot of that and I mean family from front to back you know not just a strong friendship in the kitchen but 
you know, the whole restaurant works as one seamless team, which is rare or at that time was rare for me. So I was more nervous just to keep the culture up and then to have, you know, after a couple months there to have kind of free reign of what we're able to do in the kitchen was, you know, it was like starting a new job every month, every week, you know, new ingredients, different fish, like every day I learned how to break down a different kind of fish, a different type of fish, things I'd never done before. I'm like, uh, you know, asking for help, watching YouTube videos on how to properly fillet a monkfish, things like that. I'd never even heard of a monkfish, let alone cut it, cook it, taste it. So it was every day was something new and beautiful. And it's still to this day, we have to constantly push ourselves to change. It's not only the expectation of the diner, but it's, you know, the expectation of all of us. And, you know, we have to stay relevant with food trends and ever changing in it. It forces you to be better every day and constantly change and push forward. And that's always been what the boiler room does very well is it's always changing from year to year. If you look at menus or pictures from ages ago, you know, the difference even on our charcuterie plate is drastic. And those things that have been staples are even ever changing. And, you know, we try to make them better every day. And it's been really fun, even though the menu looks the same. I think that's really fun is the menu design hasn't ever necessarily changed. And I've thought about it, but part of the fun is that the menu always looks the same, but everything on it is completely different. And and just for people who, who haven't been to the boiler room before, the menu is kind of divided into two different sections. There's probably six or seven, I think it's six, maybe it's seven, small mm-hmm. plates, and then underneath there's six or seven entrees that include you know steaks, fish, you know, proteins along those lines. So it it kind of, I think it allows a diner to have a unique experience where they can come in and get a bunch of different small plates. They can get, you know, they can get a couple proteins if they want. But it's kind of like you mentioned earlier, like you're not, you don't come in and just order one thing and then you get one plate that comes out and it's got a steak and a baked potato and some asparagus and or mm-hmm. whatever on the side. You kind of, it's more of a, more of an experience and where you're you're going to get you're going to get your drinks first and then you're going to get bread service and then you're going to get you know a small plate then you might get a second small plate then you'll you know and you kind of progress through the meal i think that there's there's something special to that and i imagine as a young cook that was really kind of fun to experience that for the first time as well right oh yeah oh yeah and it was fun i always had a joke too um cuz up until boiler room every place i worked had crab cakes on it Crab cakes, burger, and some type of Alfredo pasta. So it was always a joke. It's like, man, I can't wait for the place I go that I don't have to make crab cakes. Because <laughs> uh, they were just a pain to mix. You have to make hundreds, especially at Joey's Seafood and Grill. Shoot. I cannot imagine. It was wild. Uh, but, yeah, uh, starting there and to have uh, first courses and not the word appetizers, you know, was, I mean, that in itself was a revelation, you know, First course, not appetizer. And, you know, for it to not be shrimp cocktail, crab cakes, you know, your standard issue salad and, you know, the seasonality of it, you know, the thought process behind that. And sure, we have a pasta every day, but it's always changing. It's a filled pasta. It's cut. So you're not just learning how to make pasta. You're learning how to make 15 different kinds of pasta. Every is very, very different, by the way. Exactly. For people who haven't made pasta before. Yeah, it's, it's fun and 
you know, to experience a restaurant in the side of many development in that fashion was, you know, I mean, a huge learning curve and a very cool process. But, I mean, I definitely learned that, you know, a lot of terminology as far as croquettes and how to cut fish, especially raw fish for crudo uh, serving and things like that, and really find my passion in, uh, like, building terrines and complicated cold uh, dishes is, you know, something I fell in love with at Boiler Room that, you know, Paul at the time had kind of let me try out and execute and fail on and figure out a way, why did it go wrong? So, you know, over the years, Boiler Room has a giant bag of tricks, but, you know, at one point it wasn't that big and, you know, maybe we weren't executing them in the fashion we'd like to, but to develop it and have it done now, you know, is a testament to Paul, myself, and every chef that has worked there, you know, to get it to the point now where we are just, you know, firing on all, all cylinders, really, it's it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Now, to look back, you know, kind of back to that time before you were firing on all cylinders, you know, you mentioned you're coming in some days yeah. and it... and. You know, you're being told, okay, you got to break down a monkfish. <laughs> like, what's a monkfish? I exactly. Don't even know, I don't even know what this thing is. And, you know, you talk about watching YouTube videos, and every day is just learning something new. At what point did you feel like you really got your feet under you to the point where you felt comfortable where, yes, you're still learning every day, but it's not like this cavalcade of new information. It's, you know, you're kind of, you're finding your feet. Oh, man. Finding my feet under me. Probably, honestly, probably a year or two in after Paul and I had been through, you know, several wine dinners, you know, figuring out how to work with the whole animals that we're getting in, you know, what to do with every part of the animal, learning how to manipulate it. You know, once we, once I was able to wrap my brain around how to move product and, incorporate every cut into something beautiful on the menu you know after the you know product knowledge the seasonality you know once you understand how the Nebraska seasons really translate and what you're getting from the farmers and getting all those ingredients in you know it's it was very intimidating at first to understand how to butcher a pig a lamb you know, okay, we can't get asparagus in the heart of winter. We're not getting leafy greens in the heart of winter. So how to build the menu during every season? Under After understanding all of that is really probably when I started feeling more confident in building the menu at Boiler Room and executing it, you know, on a regular basis and a very high level, you know, after that was established and just the relationship between chef paul and myself you know as that grew stronger that's when you know we really started firing and pushing boiler room into this you know amazing restaurant that it is now you mentioned earlier that paul really empowered you and that's something that you've tried to do with your with your cooks and in sues today i apologize if i'm putting you on the spot but but do you remember like the first dish that you came up with that you created that went on the menu there's one that I was always really proud of, um, and I still kind of do it almost once a year. Uh, and we did something similarly this year, but not the same. Um, so we always have 
prosciutto in-house. And one of my favorite things to do with prosciutto, as you now know, is to take the bone and make stock with it. Oh and that was gosh. something that... With the agnolotti. Yeah. Oh. And that was something that Paul taught me, like, hey, let's, you know, don't throw that bone away. Let's make stock. So I made stock. And I was like, hey, what if we made consomme? Then not only did we make consomme, we made an aspic out of it. So we set it with gelatin. But uh, in the springtime, when asparagus is in season, we made a, I made an asparagus terrine. So layered blanched asparagus in a terrine mold and then set it with just prosciutto aspic or gelée, and then wrapped that in cured pork belly and then sliced that and served it chilled. So like your play on, you know, asparagus with a poached egg, we had this beautiful asparagus terrine with a poached egg. But that's when I fell in love with, like I said, building terrines and things like that. So that was probably the highlight or like a turning point in my culinary thinking process, I would say. Now, you know, you talk about having this great relationship with Paul and you're you're learning all these new things under him. You're starting to to get your feet underneath you and really, you know, get these techniques down. And then in 2016, that was when Paul decided he was going to step away. He was going to work a little bit more on Le Bouillon <laughs> and eventually, you know, go on to work on, v, on Via Farina as well. Mm-hmm. And that's when you were promoted to executive chef. Mm-hmm. What was that feeling like for you? Like, did you know that was coming? Did you feel ready for the moment? Were you intimidated? Just what was that moment like? Yeah, so, you know, there was a point where, you know, when Label Yan was going on that, you know, Paul had stepped back and, you know, he had promoted me to Chef de Cuisine. So I was essentially running uh, the The kitchen. kitchen, You know, he had full, you know, him and uh, the Mercers both, you know, loved the fact that I was the one uh, running the kitchen. And, you know, we had this mutual agreement that they trusted me. And, you know, as that transition was happening, I was obviously very excited. Um, You know, bittersweet to not work side by side with Paul anymore. Um, But to really be able to kind of take ownership and, you know, put my own personality and flair behind everything that was going on. I mean, a a little bit, a lot of that was happening during the transitional period, but, you know, to know that it was going to fall always on my shoulders after that was definitely nerve wracking and, you know, a lot at first, but, you know, now that it's been five years, it's been amazing and fun. And I've developed, you know, because at that point it becomes more about the whole restaurant and, less about only the kitchen I mean granted when you're there you see me in the kitchen but I have eyes and you know overlook you know the whole restaurant rather than just what's executing on the menu so that was the biggest learning curve for me during that transition Um, but you know where we are today it's pretty awesome to know every aspect about what goes on at Boiler Room and you know to have it translate to the menu and then online and in pictures is extremely rewarding. And I'm very happy with where I'm at. So can you pull back the curtain a little bit for me and for listeners, when you talk Mm -hmm. about kind of expanding your viewpoint beyond what's going on to the kitchen, to everything that's going on in the restaurant. I I mean, I can't ask you to list off every duty and every responsibility that you have, because we'd be here for hours, but can you kind of give me a a 10,000 foot view of what you're talking about there? Yeah. So, 
you know, beyond just ordering food and products for the kitchen, that's, you know, do we have enough tablecloths for the night? You know, do we need more wine glasses? You know, what's the, what are the wines by the glass? You know, the wine cellar at Boiler Room is daunting. And that's something I, I'm still trying to, to this day uh, wrap my brain around. But luckily I have, uh, you know, front of the house manager that is extraordinary at that job. So uh, to have that help has been fantastic. But, you know, to motivate not just the back of the house, the front of the house staff as well, um, to, you know, understand the steps of service for fine dining and not just how to put food on a plate and make it look nice, how the proper way to lay a plate down in front of someone, you know, maybe that you don't experience when you're only in the back of the house. Um, you know, it's like you said, hours of listing, but, you know, answering phone calls, emails, getting back to people to set up large parties, things like that, that I never experienced prior is probably the biggest learning curve. And it's, it's getting back in touch with people and, you know, setting up, interviews and how to come out and do doby podcasts (laughs) podcasts now this is a you know a fun aspect of it um that you don't get to do every day so we thank you for you know letting us all have a voice of course i i love giving that voice um now you mentioned part of the part of the benefit of becoming you know the executive chef was being able to put your personality and flair into the restaurant. And I'm just curious about that because it's, I imagine there's this kind of push and pull with that where the boiler room was a very successful restaurant at that point. And obviously Paul is an incredibly accomplished chef. Like this is what he built. This is what you grew up in. But so you want to keep it the same. You don't want to totally rock the boat and change everything, but yeah, you do want to kind of put your fingerprints on it, make it your own as well. So Mm -hmm. how, how do you, how do you kind of inject your personality into it without you know, reshaping the bedrock of what the boiler room was? Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. <laughs> um, so like I kind of mentioned before, I mean, boiler room was just the exact kind of style of cooking that I like to do. So to transfer my fingerprint onto it wasn't as difficult. Um, you know, during the transition, it, it was a little harder to make, you know, some playful menu changes um just being someone that is originally from omaha you know as a child we didn't travel a whole lot um so i didn't know a whole lot of cuisine outside of you know culinary school and what i had ate at home but to kind of take those memories or flavors like i said earlier too you know using flavors of a sandwich and you know flavors that are comfortable to me and transitioning them with what we have at Boiler Room or ingredients that we have at Boiler Room was, I think, my biggest kind of revelation in how I look at what to put on the menu at Boiler Room or what we're going to do with this that we get in. You know, we were doing a Nashville hot pork croquette uh, last year, you know, so like picking up on food trends and using, you know, a trick from our bag and then transitioning it into something that maybe you've had before and is trending right now, but to put it on a, you know, a fine dining plate when it should be served on a piece of white bread and on a napkin, you know, it's, that's the fun part. And that's what I've like really kind of, I guess, not known for, but what I like to do to put on the menu. 
I imagine that's got to be really fun for you, especially, and again, we're going to get to the open kitchen concept, but like with that open kitchen, you get to look out and see the diners. So when you, like how rewarding is that feeling when you see them get a plate with something put in front of them that they're not necessarily expecting, but then they bite into it and they're experiencing flavors that they kind of know, but are, but are like in a presented in a whole new way and their mind is kind of blown. Like, is that just an incredibly rewarding feeling? Yeah. Yeah, it's probably the best part of Boiler Room is being able to have that guest reaction that you don't get you know, when you're behind the wall or in a kitchen that isn't open, uh, you know, you get this nonverbal eye contact or smirks or smiles. Uh, people wave, people holler down at us. You know, it's it's fun. They're never hooting and hollering, but they're, you know, if they really like something, they're not shy to say, hey, chef, this is fantastic. Or all chefs, like, who cooked my steak? This is perfect. It's It's not out of the ordinary to happen. And it's fun because guests are able to hear everything that we say for the most part and you know they get to see what's going on in the kitchen so it's like they're part of the whole experience which again like we were talking earlier separates us from most restaurants Mm -hmm. just to back that up i i just want to say i think my single favorite and this is going to be weird to even say this but i'm saying it my single favorite seat in an Omaha restaurant is the one that like just overlooks that balcony mm-hmm. right next to the kitchen because it is amazing. You get to look down and really see everything. You're watching chefs baste steaks and fish, yeah. you know, in butter right at the station. You get to watch you at the pass plating everything and expediting and sending orders out. Like for a food nerd like me, like I could come to the boiler yeah. room and not even eat. I would just sit there for a couple hours and just watch. And that would be like fun for me. But, that's just probably because I'm weird. Just how, how unique is that concept? And I know that you've talked a couple different times about how it's fun for the diners and how it's fun for you, but how does that keep work fresh where you're not hidden behind a wall, but you get that interaction? Yeah. I mean, it's fresh and it's also nerve wracking. <laughs> uh, you know, cause you're, you're, and it's something I have to train uh, new cooks all the time. Like you are always on display. So, you know, you have to think about what you're doing, what spoon you're tasting with, you know, did you touch your hair? Did you just touch your face? Like, uh, you know, all those little things that, but, and, you know, also to a little bit of a fun on our end, you know, you get to play up the basting of the steak, you know, you know that you're on display, you know, you look really cool doing it. So yeah, I'm going <laughs> to butter this steak up for, you know, the whole time, you know, they're looking at you. So it's fun to have that. Um, even without having to look at the guest or, or know what's going on. But when you're in the heat of the rush, you forget about all that. And, you know, you're you're down to work, but that's when it's the most fun to watch, I assume, uh, because that's when we're really just clicking, you know, and it's all communication in the kitchen, and we work really close. It's a small kitchen crew, so everything has to work in harmony for all of those things to land on the plate in an efficient amount of time to get it out to the customer but it's been fun to work in that open kitchen and you know it's it's fun I think for the guests to come in and see you know who's working wave down talk to the chefs you know it's it's uh it's rewarding and fun and it's exciting every day now you you talked earlier about the the unique familial atmosphere that you felt at the boiler room and I 
assume that you've continued to cultivate that now. Working in a kitchen can be very tense. Obviously, it's a high-pressure environment. It's a production-oriented job where you have to get stuff out. Mistakes, you know, can lead to unhappy customers, which, you know, is obviously not a good thing. So Mm -hmm. I think that this has become less and less, but, you know, you – you read books and, you know, the kitchen confidentials, you hear these horror stories of, you know, cooks getting yelled at on the line and these, you know, just temper tantrums that chefs yeah. throw and everything. Obviously, that's something not that you can't do yeah. in, the, in the open kitchen concept. So how much does it help you to have that really tight-knit familial atmosphere with your crew where even if there is a mistake, you don't need to blow up on them. You don't need to lose it on them because you can count on them to pick up the slack to figure it out next time oh yeah well clearly i'm a hothead really tense guy uh, but <laughs> this no con- this conversation has clearly <laughs> showed that yes uh but no it's you know I, i'm fortunate right now and really the entire time we've been at boiler room to just have a great staff you know it's people that care and they're gonna care probably before i even see the final product um you know, every guy in that kitchen right now just loves food. They're passionate. They love the boiler room. So if something's not correct, if something's messed up, it's communicated. Hey, you know, I know we were delivering this steak in six minutes, but, you know, something's not right. I'm going to need 12. You know, we need to refire. So, and, yeah, we're not able to blow up. I mean, I think I think there's some days people want to see that. They want to see the the Hell's Kitchen, Gordon Ramsay yelling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it just it doesn't happen. It's not how I like to run the kitchen. And I think those days are, you know, kind of past us. Right. Uh, as far as just kitchen culture goes in general, which is I think we're all happy about. Um, but, you know, if something is messed up or isn't cooked properly, it's yeah, almost always communicated before it ever hits the plate or even, I mean, mistakes do happen uh, and things do have to be refired and it's never easy, but it's just short conversations like refire steak. You know, we'll, we'll talk about how and why at a later time, you know, we'll, we'll discuss what we could have done to correct that situation after service or, you know, when, when the tensions aren't high, but at that moment, especially at boiler room, if something isn't right, we need to get it going fast and it needs to be on the plate and out to the customer. Correct. And then we'll address the situation later. And, but I, you know, the guys that work, I think they refer to me more as a disappointed dad than ever the chef that's going to yell at you or, you know, really rip into you for at the end of the day, you know, you just trying to do your best job. You know, I know no one's deliberately messing anything up and I'm very fortunate to have, like I said, an amazing staff. Uh, and I trust those guys. I have to, so I can be able to step away for some time off and vice versa. I want to go back real quick to when you assumed the role um, of a, of executive chef. You know, we, we kind of talked about the fun side of that and how you got to, you know, put your personal tweaks on, on the restaurant. I'm assuming that there's also a good amount of, you know, intimidation that comes with that and that, you know, Paul – Paul Kulik, like that, that's a big name to replace yeah. that name. That's, that's not a small thing. Yeah. So the next year you were nominated for a James Beard award, um, a semifinalist for the rising star chef of the year. 
Yeah. What was that like? And did that kind of serve as, as validation for you that, yes, it's really tough to replace Paul, but I, I can do this. I have confidence in myself. I mean, it, it definitely helped me realize that I was good at what I was doing. Uh, you know, I always knew like I was cooking well and executing things and, uh, but that was a, that was a, I mean, I still can't put that moment into words. I, I wasn't expecting it. I actually didn't even know that morning. I didn't even know that the James Beard nominations were coming out that day. I had no prior knowledge of this happening. They didn't email me. There was no diner in that said, Hey, I'm with the James Beard foundation. It was uh really random. Um, but I mean, validation for sure that, Hey, I think I woke up to a text from a friend saying, Hey, congratulations on the James Beard nod. And I was like, <laughs> wait, what? what? <laughs> like, <laughs> like my heart's beating fast. And you know, all of a sudden I'm searching all over the James Beard foundation website so I can tell my wife and family and of course everyone at work. And it was, it was pretty, pretty wild. Um, but I think it was a catalyst to, you know, make me become better. Cause once you get that, you know, now you're getting looked at from not just peers, but the nation, the world, you know, now my name's out there. So it's, well, now we can't slow down. Now there's no, no stopping. So it's always push forward, be better. Things have to be tighter, more perfect, you know? So that was, you know, very nerve wracking, but you know, and then it happened again and it was like, what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a highlight of my career without a doubt. Now, just from a, a citywide restaurant perspective, um, I believe, and if I'm wrong on this, I, I apologize, but I believe Chef Dario Chiquet was was the first Omaha chef to be nominated for a Beard Award. And I believe that was in the late 2000s, so like 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. But there have been several since then, including a few like yourself who've been nominated multiple times. Yeah. How exciting is that to be a part of that group and to see Omaha's culinary scene being recognized when it wasn't previously? Yeah. Now people are looking at it and saying, hey, there's something cool going on here. Yeah, it's it's huge. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of years where it was just like myself on the list and it, you feel silly, you know, when you have – incredible chefs in Omaha like why why aren't there several from Omaha and you know I think I speak for every chef that's ever been on that list is anymore right now we just want one for Omaha like it's whoever's on there we're all on that team you know we're all that name we all want that here in Omaha and it's I, I feel like it's long overdue um there's just some insane talent here in Omaha, Nebraska, and it's it's very well deserved. But you know, it's it's a you know huge recognition that it you know Omaha, Nebraska deserves to be on that map. And it's nice that you know several chefs have been noticed and on it the past couple of years. So you know, one day we're all hopeful. And yeah, when it happens, it's overdue and extremely well deserved. It's coming. Yeah. I, I, I believe that. There's, yeah. like you said, there's too much good stuff going on here right now. At some point, the nation is going to wake up and realize, oh yeah, the sleeping giant that 
is here. It's really not even sleeping. It, other people just think it's sleeping. But regardless, um, something that really fascinates me about your career is now you've been working at the Boiler Room for over a decade. Mm-hmm. That that in this industry is fairly rare, in that a lot of a lot of chefs, a lot of cooks move around. Sometimes that's intentional. Sometimes that's not. I've had guests on this podcast who say I was really happy at this restaurant, but I just felt like I needed to move somewhere else, get you know, get more experience, try a different cuisine, try a different you know culture, you know, go to a different city, travel. You didn't take that route, you know. You mentioned you had some different jobs growing up but once you kind of found your home in the boiler room you never really felt the need to to go anywhere else what is it about that environment that that kept you there in a in an industry where change is really just seemingly always on the horizon yeah uh you know the fact that i was always like kind of able and given just more and more responsibility and respect i guess throughout the years it it just kind of, it definitely became a part of me and grew on me. And now it, you know, it, it it's what I do. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people would ask me, you know, do you want to open your own restaurant? And it's like, I, I feel like I am, you know, I feel like I'm running my own restaurant. And in, in theory, I am, you know, I work close with Vera Mercer, who's the owner of Boiler Room and, you know, how, how she treats me and how I treat the employees there. It's, you know, it's a as if it is a part of me, and if it is, you know, what I do, and so it's hard to it's hard to want to leave that or see myself doing that. And you know, I know eventually I'll be old and not able, and that'll probably be it. But you know, o- Omaha's just been where home is. You know, I have family here, my my wife's here, she has a good job too. So there's never been, I guess, a reason for me to try to look for something else and you know, I love what I do and I have the reign to do what I want. So it's, it's hard to, yeah, to even think about what it would be to ever move me from there. So I'm happy. I hope guests are happy that I'm there, but, uh, uh, I can confirm the guests are happy. Yeah, no, it's, it, yeah, it's just become my life, I suppose. Well, and I would assume one of the things that keeps you there is something that we talked about earlier is that, you know, it is constantly fresh and new. It's exactly. the, the restaurant is always evolving. The menu is always changing. And, and that's something that I, that I really just find so interesting and in that you see a lot of restaurants that will, they change their menus with the season. So you'll see them change, you know, three, four, five, maybe even six times a year. They'll kind of do a, a menu revamp and they'll announce it on social media and everything. But you guys are changing something on the menu just about every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, why and where do you find the time to come up with new dishes all the time? Like it is such a busy industry, and you guys are like creating these really intricate, amazing dishes with just awesome techniques. It takes so much experience. Like how, how do you do it? It's all. I mean, well, like we said, I've been there uh, forever now, uh, so I've learned how to you know, plan everything out. And a lot of times it's just in your head, written on paper. Um, and just talking with the staff, you know, what can we get in? And, you know, like you said, as the seasons change, you know, it'll go from root vegetable purees to, you know, spring green salads and blanched baby turnips. And, you know, you really get to see that transition at Boiler Room. Um, so it's really just 
figuring out what we can get that week from fish purveyors, from farmers, from, you know, what cuts of beef are we getting next week? And then really just establishing a game plan of what we're going to do. And then when things come in, immediately start working on that next dish. So once one thing is gone, once we're down to two orders of, you know, salmon, and then we're moving right into scallops and we have everything ready to back it up and then just a seamless change. And it took, you know, probably 11 years to figure that out, <laughs> uh, to where it, it, it happens seamless. So you're always, you know, two or three steps ahead to make that happen seamless. And, you know, the techniques that take a long time, uh, you just, you know that. And then, you know, we, we just finished cutting a prosciutto that had been there two years and that's still wild to me to cut into a piece of meat that's been around for two years and eat it. And it's, you know, a revelation. It's something completely different. It's better than you expected. And that's a testament to the quality of pork we get and, you know, the time and dedication from my staff to produce something like that. But, you know, just thinking about what tastes good with food and what fresh, exciting vegetables and produce that we're going to get in to really make flavors shine on a plate. So how does a new dish come together do you guys have like a any kind of like a daily stand-up where you talk about here's what we have in like what can we do with this is there you know is it you coming up with ideas or is it someone you know coming to you and saying hey you know i saw we've we, we we've got this product we've got this product i'd love to put these together like how do those new dishes come together yeah so a lot of it's just you know talking about it throughout the night especially lately you know on slower days um after we're done prepping and set up for the night, well, my line cooks will come to me and Danny, my sous chef, Moses and Andrew, uh, you know, they'll all have something that they want to do and we'll all talk together. And, you know, maybe it's a couple people bounce an idea off. The other walks over and says, Hey, we should add this. And it's, that's been kind of how we have been developing, especially first courses. Uh, cause that's where we have our most fun, you know, playful, different techniques, lots of, touches and flavors but just bouncing ideas off one another throughout the night you when we end up with some of our best dishes lately uh or they want to try a new technique some of them will come up and be like hey i want to do this i saw this i want to try it of course like let's get it let's try it and and you know just playing on you know i can't emphasize seasonality and just fresh quality of you know proteins and uh local vegetables that, I mean, that inspires more than anything else. And, uh, but yeah, just the, the teamwork and constant talking about how we can create new dishes and start new techniques is really what half the many development down there is. How important is that kind of mentorship and kind of leadership in the role of executive chef and, and where you're not the one who's just coming down and saying, okay, this is the new dish we're making today. This is what we're doing today. I, you know, just get on the line and do it. But you're having people, you're inviting them to come to you and bring their ideas, even if it's not something that you current, a product that you currently have, but you're saying, Hey, if you have an idea, you know, we can, we can try it out. We can get some of this in. How important is that to establishing the culture that you have at the boiler room? I mean, I think it's, especially in the the kitchen, it's uh, everything, uh, you know, it's how it was when I started and, you know, it's something that we're going to keep around and it, 
it helps the cooks, you know, I mean, they went to school to learn how to do new things. So if we're doing the same thing every day, they're, they're not learning anymore. It cooks, it keeps great cooks around. It keeps them happy. It keeps everyone happy. You know, it takes a little bit off my plate. I mean, of course, you know, I have like, you know, the, the final critique and like, you know, we, we dial it in after we taste it and, uh, and then it goes on the menu, but it's, it keeps everything fun and always changing and it keeps the restaurant new for myself and them. So, I mean, to have that, you know, I think once you're an executive chef and you're a good chef and you're established, you have to mentor, you have to cultivate and, you know, keep changing and teaching cooks so they can ultimately move into that position or, you know, move on and do something even better than we could. And it's just, it's fun to see the growth of all the cooks that have been in and out of boiler room and the cooks that are there now. It's, it's amazing. And, you know, I hate to say that I'm a proud dad, but I'm, (laughs) it's, it's crazy to see how, where everyone started and where they're at now, myself included. And, you know, we have boiler room to thank for that. Well, Chef, I uh, I thank you so much for your time today. This has been a pleasure. I could probably talk your ear off for three or four hours, but yeah. you don't have time for that. The studio <laughs> doesn't have time for that. Fair enough. Maybe maybe another time. But I, I just really honestly wanted to to thank you for for what you've done and, and what you've cultivated at the Boiler Room, um, especially all the hard work that you've had to do during the pandemic, which we didn't even talk about that. I try to avoid that topic, you know, yeah. on these shows. I, I can't imagine how difficult that has been, but that yeah. you've kept it going and you've just the amount of hard work that you put in to kind of set the boiler room apart and help it. Like, you know, we talked about expanding that Omaha scene. I think the boiler room is a restaurant that kind of serves as a standard bearer and provides an example and motivation for other restaurants to step up their game and, and new chefs to really get excited about food and, and really, you know, keep pushing themselves. So I, I just want to say thank you for, thank you for your service and, and well, thank, thank you, you for doing that. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, chef, thank you so much for your time today. Thank and you. Uh, Omaha, as always, thanks for eating with us. A Huda Media Production.